Our gospel lesson on this Transfiguration Sunday comes from the ninth chapter of Mark, verses 2 through 7, and I'm reading today from the New King James Version. Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His clothes became shining exceedingly white like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. And Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Because he did not know what to say, for they were greatly afraid. And a cloud came and overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son, hear him. Suddenly, when they had looked around, they saw no one anymore but only Jesus with themselves. Now, as they came down from the mountain, he commanded them that they should tell no one the things they had seen till the Son of Man had risen from the dead. This is the story of the transfiguration. This story is big. So big that like Jesus' ride into Jerusalem or the disciples' tongues of fire experience of the Holy Spirit, it has its own dedicated Sunday in the church year. The story of transfiguration is so big that you know who's in it? Moses. Not just here in this chapter, but he has been in the story since Exodus. After Moses' second encounter with God on Mount Sinai, his face was shining so that the people were afraid to come near him. And after that, he wore a veil over his face, taking it off only when he met face to face with God. This story of transfiguration is so big that you know who's in it? Paul. Paul uses the same Greek word here translated as transfigured. He uses it in his letter to the Romans. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, transfigured, by the renewing of your minds. And in his second letter to the Corinthians, and all of us with unveiled faces, you hear Moses in there, seeing the glory of the Lord as though reflected in a mirror, are being transformed, transfigured, into the same image from one degree of glory into another. This story of transfiguration is so big that you know who's in it? John the Revelator. That part about how Jesus' robes became dazzlingly white, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. The Greek word for whiten or make white is used only one other time in the New Testament in the book of the Revelation where we learn that those who have come out of the great ordeal have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Sometimes through images, sometimes through word choices, the story of the transfiguration stretches across the whole of the Bible. This is big. And at the center of this epic trans-biblical story, at the top of a high mountain, stands Jesus, transfigured. It's big. It is hugely important, and yet... Apart from the dazzling white of his clothes, we don't actually know what his transfiguration looked like. My dictionary says a transfiguration 
might be a change in form, a metamorphosis, or an exalting, glorifying, or spiritual change. Of course, we don't know what that looks like either. I think we're meant to understand that the transfiguration of Jesus was beyond description. In fact, that is our clue that what happened was an experience of the divine. The farther an experience is from reality, the harder it is to describe. Knowing that this divine presence was manifest in Jesus Christ, says commentator Fame Perkins, demonstrates for Mark's readers that the kingdom Jesus is preaching has been implemented for Mark's readers. Because for Mark's readers, which of course includes us, Jesus' resurrection is already accomplished. Not so for the disciples, who not only don't know what they are seeing, but are instructed by Jesus not to tell anyone about it. Which is fine because Peter, for one, did not know what to say, because, like James and John, he was terrified. Poor Peter! Peter, who struggles to say and do what is pleasing to Jesus, have made him such rich fodder for sermons through the ages. Peter, whose impulses feel so familiar to so many of us. What did Peter do here? In his terror, he grasped at the things that were stable in his experience, the lessons learned from childhood. A full-on face-to-face encounter with the divine Here is what you do. You build a tent of meeting. Any Jew like Peter could tell you that because any Jew would have learned from childhood that Moses met face to face with God in a tent of meeting, a tabernacle. When Peter says, let's make three tabernacles, he isn't just making stuff up out of nowhere. He's drawing on a lifetime of religious practice, which is not a bad thing to do when you're terrified. A lot of Transfiguration Day sermons have been preached on why Peter's response in the moment was wrong. They focus on his suggestion, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here and let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. But what interests me today more than Peter's suggestion is how the narrator calls him out, adding, because he did not know what to say, for they were greatly afraid. A narrator is usually invisible, but here, in effect, the narrator, the one who tells the story, becomes a character himself, standing and looking at Peter, shaking his head with a mixture of exasperation and affection, simultaneously critiquing and excusing Peter's behavior. Some translations put the narrator's comment in parentheses, heightening the feeling that he has just stepped from behind the curtain to address the audience. He did not know what to say. Poor Peter, there he goes again, but I can't be too hard on him. After all, he was scared half to death. Bless his heart. A sermon I've heard a lot says that Peter's suggestion was wrong because he wanted to prolong the experience in the high and holy place instead of living a transformed life down the mountain. You've heard that sermon, and it makes sense. But the funny thing is, though it's sort of implied, 
The narrator doesn't actually say that what Peter said was wrong, is it? He doesn't seem to have behaved unfaithfully. He used what he knew. He made an educated guess. He didn't break anything or hurt anybody. Maybe he just needed to stretch his imagination. To see that, for example, as Pastor Andrew preached last week, the holiness experienced on the highest mountain is just as present in our own homes. Maybe the narrator evaluating Peter is more like a teacher writing on a paper. This is not Peter's best work. So what should Peter do to improve it? Just then a voice from heaven directs him, This is my beloved son. Hear him. All ears are on Jesus now, who says nothing, at least not right away. In fact, the whole time they're on this high mountain, Jesus does not speak to the disciples. How can they listen to a Jesus who is not speaking? Maybe by thinking about what they have already heard him say. Jesus' silence might, for example, give Peter the opportunity to remember what happened six days before this story. Six days before, Jesus began to teach his disciples that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Peter would also remember that he rebuked Jesus for those words, and that Jesus in response said, get behind me, Satan. Again, not Peter's best work. But even in that low moment, wasn't he calling on the lessons of his childhood, the ones about a victorious king who would save the Jewish people? Wasn't he just doing his best to be faithful when what he really was was terrified? Our current season of the church year began with an epiphany, the revelation of Jesus to the Gentiles. And today it ends with the transfiguration, another epiphany. There's more revelation to come. Lamar Williamson calls the crucifixion a kind of reverse transfiguration, the revelation of divine presence in suffering. But just because there's an epiphany doesn't mean everyone is enlightened. God was showing Peter something, but Peter wasn't getting it yet. The best he could do was think and pray about what he had already heard Jesus say and try to get a little closer to understanding, just a little closer to knowing what to say. In the presence of the divine, how do we know what to say? Most of the time, the best we can do is try to be faithful. Even as we draw on the lessons of our past. In fact, sometimes precisely because we keep drawing on the lessons of our past, we are not going to fully understand the glory of God in Jesus Christ. The best we can do is try to get a little closer. One summer at senior high camp at Laurel Ridge, we were told to imagine that we could ask Jesus one question. What would it be? My question would be, Jesus, 
what is one thing that we have gotten really wrong about you? I feel like that would be a really helpful thing to know. I'm quite sure there's a lot that we do and a lot that we say that would make Mark's narrator shake his head in fond exasperation. They don't know what to say. They're just so, so scared. Then again, maybe at least some of what we do and say in the presence of God's glory isn't exactly wrong. Maybe it's just not our best work. Not yet. It is an act of faith to keep trying, doing the best we can to say and do what God desires of us as our eyes keep adjusting to the light of God's glory. Guess who else had to do that? Moses. Guess who talked about gradual change? Paul. Remember what Paul said. All of us with unveiled faces, seeing the glory of the Lord as though reflected in a mirror, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory into another. It's an ongoing transformation, though, of course, nobody's robe will be completely white unless it is bathed in the blood of the Lamb. Guess who figured that out? John the Revelator. They are all there in this story of transfiguration. Generations of God-seekers are there. We are in there. I'm telling you, this story is big. It goes all across the Bible in the same way that God's glory stretches from one end of the heavens to the other. And we stand with Jesus in the middle of all that glory, scared half to death and trying our best to understand. Meanwhile, the one who tells our story, the one who wrote our story, goes on gently critiquing and at the same time, forgiving us, understanding our fear, encouraging our transformation. Our best work is yet to come. Thanks be to God. We are being transformed. Bless our hearts. Amen.